Hi everyone, I'm Ian from Anantech.com and welcome to the Anantech podcast. This is podcast 32 and this time we've got a PC one for you. Joining me today is Brett Howes, our laptop editor. Hello everyone. You sounded just like Brian then. <laughs> Brett's the new It was Brian. not my goal. Thanks for coming on. Um, it's always great to have you on a podcast and um, we've actually got some big stories to talk about. One of the things we're actually going to miss out on this one and talk to talk on the next podcast is about AMD's financial day. Yeah, even though Ryan posted so much information on the website, I think we're all still pretty much digesting that. But big news from from Brett is Brett was at Build Microsoft Build last week for a few days. They they announced quite a lot of uh, Windows 10, Hololens, Xbox information, and we want to go through that in this uh, in this podcast. I also want to go through the Surface 3 with you. Your review's been posted up on the website for a few days now, probably later when this podcast goes out, but highly recommend everybody who's interested in uh, devices like the Surface 3 to check it out. And for any listeners out there wanting a mobile podcast, I've pinged Josh. We have one lined up to record. Keep an ear out for that. Keep an eye out on the website for that. And I'll record one with Josh and we can get through some of the new phones and especially ARM architectures. That's always interesting to look at. So. But first, I want to discuss Core M, um, Intel's 14 nanometer Broadwell 4.5 watt part. Recently, between Brett and I, we posted a rather large investigative article about how Core M responds to chassis design and heat response, and how Core M turns that small two-in-one laptop tablet form factor, the low-power form factor, on its head. Yeah, I just want to say that the the start of that article was really after reviewing a few of these devices and just seeing how different the performance levels were depending on more the device type and the construction of the device rather than the actual, you know, CPU inside, which is certainly different. We're we're much more accustomed to higher numbered parts just going to be faster. However, that wasn't the case, so we thought we'd dig into that and I thought it was a pretty interesting set of results that we got out. It, it just means that when we do Quorum comparisons happen in the future, the part number doesn't ultimately determine the performance, which is something we've seen in the smartphone space anyway. Smartphone has a similar sort of design profile, as it were, because that's a much, much smaller device. And it just so happens that as you shrink down big, big, big cores, big x86 cores down, they suddenly hit a thermal limit based on the chassis design, which is what we investigated and we want to go through um, some of what we did and the results that we found with you guys if you haven't had a chance to read the article on the main website yet. But Core-M itself, Core-M was released at essentially at the beginning of the year. CES time was a big for Core-M. We saw devices on display and we had devices on hand but this is Intel's first 14 nanometer dual core part using the Broadwell architecture. All the SKUs, there's about seven in total, are all rated at a thermal design power of four and a half watts. They all feature generation eight graphics in 1.3 billion transistor package. So 1.3 billion transistors for four and a half watts. That's pretty impressive numbers if you have ever followed the processor industry over the last decade or so. But the whole point about Core M was that Intel wanted to use their big x86 cores into something extremely low power. So they did some tests internally and they targeted 11 and a half inch devices at eight millimeters thick, which if you think about it is, you know, a, a small two in one, a small laptop or a large tablet. So they 
went after that device and they looked at the thermal design power which would be suitable for a device of that type of that construction they came up with a number four and a half watt and they took their big broadwell cores and engineered them down into a low power state like I say there's seven SKUs on offer um, and they all differ in base and turbo frequency OEMs can decide to take a processor and use it in uh, thermal design power up mode CDTP up which gives it uh, six watts dissipation or in down mode which is three and a half watts and all that does is that adjusts the base CPU frequency um, and assuming that there's enough cooling and of course it'll keep the the uh, throttle or the turbo speeds up as well well, that, so. that this, this, was, this was the whole point of our article, wasn't it? We saw that devices that had the top end chip, which was called the uh, 5Y70 and the 5Y71, those chips in a crudely designed chassis were performing worse than the low end chip, the 5Y10. The fi if the 5Y10 was in a good chassis, it was performing better, depending on the benchmarks being run. I mean, we ended up with sort of a... It, it depended ultimately on how bursty the workload was. Yeah, as soon as the workloads were very short, the 5Y71 would just trounce all over. 5Y10, it has 900 megahertz more on the maximum turbo clock. So it's pretty significantly faster on short workloads. But uh, yeah, once you get into longer workloads, it really, just like a smartphone, like you said, comes down to how it can get rid of the heat that it's generating. And if it can't, it has to throttle down. We don't want them to start on fire. But this is what we termed in our piece as um, the OEM's dilemma. When you have a company like Lenovo, like HP, like Dell, like Asus, they have to design a system around this part. And they have options of what materials they can use, what heatsink and fan arrangement they can use, the construction of the device itself, what parameters they deem necessary for comfort. So if it's something that you have to put on your lap, it's going to have a lower threshold than something you can put on a table. And then something in your hand is, you just don't want it to burn your hands, essentially, as it gets hot. Ultimately, what CoreM does is it responds to the heat production and the heat dissipation. So if you have a good chassis design, it dissipates the heat quicker and you can stay in turbo modes longer. Or at least that's, that's the theory, right? Yeah, and I believe... I would say that we've concluded that that is what happens. And I mean, that's not surprising what happens, but on the laptop side, it's it's just a lot different than what we've seen in the past. I mean, uh, heat has always been an issue, of course, but never to this extent because we've never had processors that are supposed to be in something so small. With Apple pushing everything thinner and thinner and thinner, and with Intel with the Ultrabook platform that they started a few years back, everything's been designed for that, you know, under two pounds, about as thin as you can get it. So this is really pushing the boundary in terms of chassis design and making engineers think. Or at least it's making the good engineers think. <laughs> There's a few bad ones out there. I'm sure there are somewhere, yeah. The devices that we tested, we started with the, uh, well, actually the first one I think we saw was the Yoga 3 Pro, and you had that at CES. But that was the first generation. And then they launched a second one with the 5Y71, which came out later on. So that's the first one that we saw. And performance was not maybe as high as we expected. This is a um, fully rotatable laptop, essentially. So you can use it in tablet mode. You can use it in tent mode. You can use it as a laptop. It's designed to be used. Yeah, and it's incredibly thin. Yeah. So this is like right up there 
the only chip that would even fit in here would be Broadwell Y because of the size of it. So it's one of these brand new generation, ultra thin. Uh, like like Ian said, the screen rotates around just like all the yogas have over the past couple of years now. This is the first generation with the with it was actually the first device launched with Coram, and it was actually launched in October. So I mean, Coram started around October, but it was quite slow to get out and didn't seem like it had a a lot of sales. It seemed like it was pretty slow going in October, November. And then around January there, it started to pick up, and it seemed like more OEMs were able to get a hold of it. So start, yeah, we started with the Yoga 3 Pro, and uh, another device we received from Dell was the Dell Venue 11 Pro 7000, which is a is a mouthful of a name, but it's a it's a tablet with no fan. The Yoga 3 Pro does have a fan, even though it is Coram, it doesn't technically need a fan. But they decided to put a fan in there to keep the temperatures in check. Uh, the Venue 11 Pro is totally fanless, so uh, it's a little thicker. It's a plastic design, right? Yeah, it's got a plastic back, so, so it doesn't meet the uh, metal chassis that would probably be the ultimate for Coram. So the plastic back kind of slows the heat transfer down, so it does have a large uh, copper heat sink inside of it. And then the next device we got, which really started... The whole article was the uh, Asus UX305, and it came with the lowest tier Core M processor, the 5Y10, which is a 800 megahertz base and a 2 gigahertz turbo, so quite a quite a bit less than the 1.2 and 2.9 gigahertz of the 5Y71. However, performance was often at least as good, if not much better, especially on the GPU benchmarks. The Asus design, it's, it's a fully aluminium chassis. Yeah, it's a full full aluminium laptop. So being a laptop, unlike the other devices, doesn't have to be held in your hand. It's going to be sitting on a table or even in your lap, but then it should be up on the feet, so it won't be actually touching your legs. So they they can go a bit higher on the temperatures before it has to throttle. So a full, full laptop, it has more space to dissipate the heat because it's a laptop than something like a tablet. Yeah, and what else have we seen with Core M? Um, I guess we've seen the MacBook. Yeah, Ryan's had a look at the MacBook, and you, you've got a couple more devices in. Yeah, I've got the uh, Asus T300G as well, although I haven't had a chance to look at it yet, but it is Core M, and it's full aluminum tablet too. So it'll be interesting to see how that one compares to the laptop version. This is the 5Y71, so it, in theory it should be faster. However, even though it's all aluminum, it is a tablet, so you do have to hold it. So I'll be curious to see how it performs once I get around to checking that one out. The three devices we tested for the article were the Asus, the Lenovo, and the Dell. Uh, I say we tested, you tested, I'll be honest. <laughs> I didn't do much. But the, we, we went through our normal benchmarks. We did So we did some PC Mark, we did some Future Mark, we did some Cinebench, um, and a couple of others. And... We essentially ran the test with all the sensors being recorded, processor frequency, so we can monitor how the turbo mode kicks in and out, the SOC temperature, so we can see how, how the design responded to temperature. And out of that, we got a result for the benchmark and an average frequency of the device. Those were the main metrics we reported. Yeah. Yes, so we, yeah, we just log those every, every second or so. So, so you produce plots, and you notice that, you know, something like the Yoga Three Pro, it's clear that it doesn't go above 
65 degrees Celsius. Yeah, that, that was interesting because it's, of course, the only one with active cooling, but they've actually chosen the lowest SOC temperature to target. So at 65, it would just throttle. And, I mean, it doesn't take long to get to 65 with a modern CPU. They can all handle around 90 or more. So Well, the, 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 Dell, the Dell went up to 95, right? Yeah, the Dell did go all the way up to the maximum. And because it was plastic, you couldn't really feel the heat as much through the device, although it still did get warm. And the Yoga 3 Pro, I, I got to hand it to them. It, it never really gets warm in your hand, although the fan... You can certainly hear it. Once you use some of the fanless devices, it gets pretty nice to use a device with no fan for a while as your as your main machine. So, and we logged the, everything. We logged the GPU frequencies as well. What what was the SOC temperature on the ASUS on the UX? It would, it would go up to ninety, but it was rare. It would usually because uh, the cooling system was able to handle it. It would usually not get above eighty or even seventy five. And on some of the tests, it would you barely even get over 50. So on the shorter frequency, the more burst, bursty workloads. So like Touch XPRT is quite bursty, as well as PC Mark. So it was able to stay at its top turbo frequency for longer, which is ultimately why it won those workloads. It yeah, got higher. Even, even though its top turbo frequency is so much lower, it was able to maintain it for quite a bit longer. So on any workloads that had a significant amount of sustained workloads, like the Cinebench especially, the 5Y10, even though it was, you know, only at 2 gigahertz, was over the entire run, which is, you know, up to 10 minutes on the single core workload, it uh, it would stay right there the whole time. It was completely flat, whereas the other ones were very much up and down, trying to get to 2.9. And it would almost be interesting if we could downclock them and, and set them just to see how they would respond, because... It, is it actually the jumping up to 2.9 gigahertz that's causing all this excessive heat? Uh, of course, the other option would be to have a 5Y71 in the ASUS UX305, but we were uh, unable to get one of those. No, they decided not to ship that to the US market. Yeah, they, they don't have it in the US, so we weren't able to get one. The takeaway results from this testing was that because everything's going through turbos and then you've got race to sleeps during quiet parts especially during bursty workloads, average frequency isn't that good an indicator of performance. We saw devices with high average frequencies but low score results in the benchmarks just because of how the workload was. So that ultimately wasn't a good indicator of performance. And the take-home message in the end was, with Core M, it's better to invest in a good design rather than a good processor depending on your workload. If you're doing hardcore workloads, you know, you're, you're on the road and you need to do some extreme photo editing or you need to manipulate a video and pass data around, then go for a good design laptop over a faster processor. Yeah, and I guess I'll just, uh, of course, a lot of the stuff that we do isn't very intensive. So browsing the web or whatever. So the faster ones are significantly faster on those kind of tasks like web browsing and the short workloads, which is a lot of what we do. It's not too many people are going to be doing, you know, Lightroom editing on their Core M laptop. The whole entire performance needs to be looked at. It's actually quite fast when you look at it, especially for the TDP that it's at. It seems to be a lot of, I see a lot of comments and, oh, Core M, it's slow. I don't want it. Well, it's not slow. It's, you know, in most, most of our 
benchmarks, it's quicker than the Haswell Core i5s that we tested last year. So it's not slow. It's definitely slower than the new Core i5 Broadwells. You know, depending on the workload, it was a few times that they was actually faster than that even because the i5-5200U wouldn't go above 2.7 gigahertz and the Core M could. So plus it has a bit more cache. It's, it's just an interesting turn for what we normally consider would be, well, pick the best processor if you've got the money. We're now turning our heads around and doing sort of smartphone analyses on these processors. Yeah, the march to mobile. I mean, everybody is moving that way and Intel's been slow to get there, but it looks like they've got their sights on it now. It just makes me wonder, um, you know, that we, we've had some devices in for Core M and they get, you know, the usual array of 10, 7 to 10 hours battery life all within, you know, 8, 9 millimeters or what have you. If somebody did a 20 millimeter device, packed it full of battery, and then it was also able to keep its top turbo frequencies for longer, you've got an ultimate combination there. Perhaps I'm, I'm the only person who wants that sort of thing. You may be the only person. I, I think the whole fanless movement is going to be uh, stronger <laughs> because people are used to it on tablets and stuff that they don't, that they're not loud. They don't get hot. So the Dell Venue 11 Pro did come with an attachable keyboard that gave it about 40% more battery capacity. So, I mean, it would get 14 or so hours, which, which is pretty good, but it still isn't as good as the XPS 13 got on the same test. So, and that's a full core i5. So I think there's a lot of confusion that the TDP being lower means that it's going to be a low power chip. But when you're not doing any significant work, the power on core i5 and core M is going to be very similar because of course they're basically exactly the same architecture. The problem with TDP on these low end parts is it kind of, Intel used to do a thing called scenario design power where it'd be like, this is the average power usage for our CPU. It will, not the full peak, which is what TDP is meant to signify. And I think Intel, Intel might be slightly muddying the waters there with TDP and SDP by calling everything TDP. So it's, it can be a little confusing from that standpoint. But where Core M sits now in that low power premium, this is, this is why the devices cost $600, $700 plus. Whereas underneath Core M, you've got Atom, which is the low price, low power. But we're going to speak about the Surface 3 a little bit later, which has Atom. So I think that's going to be a good time to bring that in. But wrapping up what we did on Core M, it turns out that the chassis matters more in sustained workloads. That's what we found, which is what smartphones are at the end of the day. And I know Brett's got some more devices in, and uh, we're going to see how our tests change with those new devices, right? Yeah, it's certainly a big change in the standard laptop test that even though it is such a low TDP, it'll use all of it if it can, and more. I mean, if you're going to run it up to 2.9, which it only does on single core, it's going to use all of that TDP, and especially the graphics side, you know, it can really hammer it. So... Uh, if it's got the cooling available, it'll probably pull more than that, which is, you know, what you just alluded to with the whole SDP and TDP scenario. So, so yeah, we'll have some more Core M coming up once we get a few more devices finished that I can uh, move on to the T300, I guess, would be the next one. Next part of the podcast I want to bring up is Microsoft's build conference that you're in, you're, you're at last week. Now, I'll be honest, I've not necessarily followed a build conference before. What, what exactly is build? So 
Build is their developer conference. So they do lots of conferences. This is the one that's focused on developers. And the reason it's kind of covered by the media is because what they tell developers is what they're going to try to get ready for the future. So uh, for instance, this week they had their Ignite conference and it's more IT based. So an IT is is a little bit forward looking, but mostly what we have now and how to use system center configuration manager and those kind of things. So, so build is for developers. It's all about code. It's all about Visual Studio and apps. That's probably the key point for Microsoft right now is, is apps. I don't think it's a surprise to anybody listening to the podcast that there hasn't been the amount of developer interest in Windows as there has been in the past. So um, it's not the dominant platform like it used to be. So these kind of conferences are, are fairly important. Microsoft is fairly late to the app game anyway. Um, I mean, Apple jumped on the bandwagon first. Google came very close behind, but due to the Microsoft release cadence of their platforms, it's kind of slowed slowed their input. So things like Build, I mean, I saw some tweets you know, saying, Build is a developer conference. Why is there code? Isn't, isn't code meant to be a big part of it? I, I would think that if you're going to have code, a developer conference is probably the place to have it. So uh, they did show lots of code during the keynote. Some of the some of the comments of the keynote was that there was too much code, but uh, I don't think so. The crowd there was quite happy to see it. So they they have a lot to talk about about apps, about coding, about their platforms. I mean, we we look at them as a software company, a platform company, a bit of hardware. They really want to be a platform company. And they really want to be a platform company in the cloud, which is probably one of their biggest strengths is their data center knowledge. The first thing they actually talked about was Azure, which was, you know, not something that you always hear about. But Azure, they want it to power all the mobile apps. So what is Azure? It's basically Windows servers and not even anymore. It's actually Linux and everything. But in the cloud, all hosted by Microsoft, you pay a lot, a lot less. There's no support needed. You just pay for a service. So it's platform as a service, P-A-A-S, um, if you ever see the acronym. Infrastructure as a service is another one. And then software as a service. So and Azure does is, all is, of it. Is, isn't that kind of like um, Amazon's web service, AWS? Yeah, it's obviously very similar to AWS. Um, both of the companies have their own strengths, I guess, and weaknesses, but they compared it directly to uh, AWS for parts of the keynote. So, uh, okay, so quite a bit is new. They're really jumping into the whole container model, which is, which is kind of new. I mean, virtualization was the big keyword in the, in the 2000s, I guess. Um, everybody wanted to virtualize their servers. But now, based not not solely on Docker, but Docker is probably the biggest company, or most well known anyway, doing the container model. So the container model is on Azure already, and Docker is a big part of it. And they're moving Docker to Azure. Containers are you put your application in a container, and you can run it on any server that can run your container. So it's kind of like application virtualization, basically. Isn't that a Java virtual machine? <laughs> it kind of sounds yeah. like it's kind of like that but yeah uh, way way different level of virtualization so much okay. more hardware based they're going to have docker oh well they already do on azure it's incredibly easy 
to package your applications. You can do it right through Visual Studio. They showed a, a demo of putting an app into Azure through Visual Studio into Docker. And uh, it was just incredibly easy and quick. Does that mean that you can have essentially a Docker container running in either Windows OS on Xbox OS or on, say, Windows Phone OS, and just because it's the same sort of um, implementation um, as all three, you could have the same code on all three? That's slightly different. That's um, This is more for the back end of an app. So okay. that would be the actual code. So yeah, we'll get to that. That's definitely a big part of their, their push, but um, this is all on Azure. So Docker will run on Azure in Linux or Windows. They've now open sourced uh, a good chunk of their .NET core, and so they have it running on Linux now. So Docker will run Windows apps on Linux now. It's pretty interesting to see the, the change over the years from Microsoft because they didn't really embrace that for a long time, and now it seems like they've fully embraced opening up their, their platforms and uh, supporting all of the models. There's a lot about Azure, stuff that probably most people don't really want to know about, but uh, a big thing was like how to work with all of your data. Uh, big data is a big key these days. So uh, they had Hadoop and you know data lakes. So you can store all of your data in Azure. You can have infinite storage now and just run all of your workloads on your data as it is. You don't have to convert it to a, a database or anything first. So moving on from uh, Azure, uh, they started talking about Visual Studio Code, which is the new uh, editor, code editor, that they're having, and it'll run on OS X, and it will work on uh, on Linux. They showed it on, in Ubuntu. So it's a new part of the Visual Studio family. It's not the full Visual Studio IDE, but uh, interesting that they finally got Visual Studio, and it had IntelliSense and everything that people would be used to with Visual Studio, and you can just run it on whatever system that you want to edit your code on. You don't have to do it in, in Windows anymore. So once again, another step in the direction of what they're uh, trying to move towards a more open Microsoft, I guess. I, I assume that means you just write the code in the interface and you can still compile it using... Yeah. You can compile it right in Visual Studio Code and it has debugging and all of that. So it isn't the full IDE like you would get with the full Visual Studio on Windows. But it was a more lightweight version. Uh, it seemed to be some people that wanted even this. It doesn't actually run on Windows um, because, of course, you can get the full Visual Studio. There was people that would like to see this as a more lightweight uh, code editor, but I'm not sure if they'll ever do that. But they, you know, they, maybe they will. I guess moving on, that was uh, that was fairly interesting. They they had a couple of these uh, little things that they dropped on us that nobody was really expecting, and I think the Visual Studio Code and it's available in a preview already. Nobody really expected that one, I don't think. So then they moved on to Office. They want Office 365 to be a platform. So they really are a platform company. And uh, they showed some integration there. I mean, we won't go through that. It's not too exciting. But then they moved on to Windows 10, which is the one that was most exciting to me, I guess the most interesting. You've been using it for since the first builds came out, about yeah, six months? It, uh, it came out October or end of September, I guess. But of 2014. So that was the first build. I barely used it then. It was pretty rough, the first build. So 
at the January announcement is when I install Windows 10 on my desktop, and I've been using it ever since as my main OS just to get a good feel for what it does and what it brings. Um, it's been interesting to see it over the time that they've been upgrading it because they've had quite a few builds pushed out since January, although it was a little slow at the start. My thoughts are that it's it's quite good. It's a big change from Windows 8, which will make a lot of people that like Windows 7 happy, but it still keeps a lot of the Windows 8 in it. So they might still be a little bit upset, but it seems to keep the good parts and less of the bad parts. So what still needs to change, though, is that it's still very buggy. There's still a lot of bugs, a lot of the apps crash. You, you've been having issues with Skype, haven't you? Yeah, my Skype is crashing about every hour or so, and often I wouldn't be able to launch my start menu or any apps. So I actually just reinstalled everything yesterday. I had upgraded originally from Windows 8.1 to Windows 10, and I think something along the way, it didn't work very well. So I just started fresh yesterday and wiped out everything and started again. And it seems a lot more stable now. So still have the odd app crashes, but it's part of using beta software, I, I suppose. And they finally gave a name to their new browser. So they're getting rid of Internet Explorer, as probably everybody knows, because we've posted a few stories about that. Uh, they're replacing it with something called Edge. So it'll be Microsoft Edge instead of Internet Explorer, and it used to be Project Spartan. Uh, they picked Edge, apparently, because people like the E, but I'm not sure about that. I think it's just familiarity with some people. Not sure if I love the name or not of Edge. How about you, Ian? The thing is, <laughs> it's funny thing you, you, you say about having you know the logo, the E, or at least trying to make it similar. I mean, one thing that I've learned to do over the years is if I want to get a member of my family who's not necessarily computer literate to use Google Chrome, I will install Google Chrome and then change the low, change the icon of Chrome to Internet Explorer and just tell them it's an update. <laughs> and that's, that's awesome. Because the first time I did it, I didn't change the icon and they complained saying, I don't know how to use it. Yet if you tell them it's an upgrade, then they just have to use it. So, but it, yeah, I, I think that might be one of the reasons if, if, if that's what you're saying, people like the E, then they're the sort of people that they're thinking of because, I mean, Windows. I, I agree, yeah. It, it's Windows. funny though because Windows 10, they picked the number 10 apparently. They won't confirm this, but to distance themselves from 8. And if you think there's anything that needs to be distanced from, it's the, the loathing that people have for Internet Explorer. And I say that as somebody who uses Internet Explorer quite a bit, I, I didn't have the problems with it. Lots of people did, and I like some of the features. Um, but it certainly wasn't fast. Uh, it was certainly, you know, ActiveX controls and all that. It's it's just so nice to see that they're getting rid of all that and ditching that. Yeah, sticking with the, the E is, is a nice idea. It almost might be more confusing, though, since on Enterprise, they'll still offer, well, I guess on anybody's machine, Internet Explorer 11, uh, which will have an E as well. So it should be great once you get that in the... In the enterprise, you'll have two E's on your taskbar, and one of them will be a new browser, one will be an old browser. But anyway, uh, so Edge is a is a big improvement. Anyway, it's running a new, well, it's actually still with Chakra, uh, which is their uh, JavaScript engine, and Trident, which is their rendering engine. So they're sticking with that, but they're pulled out. They actually just had a blog post today on all the stuff that they've pulled out to make Edge because they had so much backwards compatibility built in. So it's significantly faster. Uh, we actually ran some benchmarks back in January, and it's about comparable with Chrome now for, for speed, which is a giant boost over Internet Explorer, which was terrible. 
the question becomes a lot of enterprise applications are built on IE6 web apps and companies don't want to spend money updating them. Uh, they're still go- they're going to have trouble with those. Well, no, because they can still run IE11 if they want to. So it actually won't be a problem. And if companies are still using IE6 as their base, they're, they're in trouble anyway since uh, XP has been out of support for over a year now. So they've kept the compatibility. Originally, they were going to have both Spartan and, well, I guess it's Edge now, excuse me, and Internet Explorer. And both of them would have both rendering engines available. Yeah, so one is called MSHTML, uh, which is the Internet Explorer one. And then the, the other one is, is Edge.HTML, uh, which is, I guess, where they got the name from. So, and it would automatically switch back the old version if it like found a compatibility issue on the site but they've ditched that idea the new one is going to be the new one and the old one is going to be old one and i think that's a lot better way to go um hopefully they won't have a huge amount of people stuck on internet explorer that's kind of been the hold up with a lot of web development has been that you always have to make a backwards compatible so so yeah anyway and then the new browser is going to have you know uh it's going to support extensions they showed extensions during the keynote um, and just basically almost without much difference the same extensions from Chrome would work and uh, they showed like the Reddit that they had ported over so uh, it should be nice um, we'll see it the UI is fairly sparse right now it has some support for things that others don't like the reading mode and the annotations of web pages and stuff like that but I'm not sure how important that is so I guess we'll see as time goes on I don't often find myself thinking well, if only I could circle this image on this page and send it to somebody but I'm sure lots of people do use that would would use that so I mean maybe it will be important what else is in Windows 10 so the new start menu obviously they added transparency back so the start menu has been tweaked many times during all the builds and they keep changing the layout of it and the current version, which is on the build that they just released last week, is probably my favorite so far. It it went a lot wider instead of the, the previous one. You'd have to scroll down a lot to get through all of your tiles. It's kind of like a mini start screen from Windows 8, which I liked, but a lot of people didn't. Cortana is also a big uh, part of Windows 10. Uh, it was originally launched in the phone, and then they moved it over to Windows 10. Um, they've added quite a bit of features to Cortana. They went through a lot of them. We had a special breakout session where they discussed Cortana and what they want to do with it. So they have a lot planned. They want to make it more of an assistant that actually does things for you proactively rather than you always having to ask it to do things. So we'll see how that works out. They also are going to use Cortana to help out the store by using it to recommend apps to you that if you use this one, maybe you'll like this one. But it's it seems fairly subtle. It's going to show it. So the example that they gave, if you play a Star Wars game uh, and you type Star Wars into your search box to pop up the game, it'll show you other Star Wars games from the store. So that was kind of it for Cortana and, the, and Edge. Uh, nice to have a name. Then they dropped a couple of bombs on everybody. They decided to support Android apps, which is something that had been rumored for a while. So, I mean, that wasn't too surprising. But the way that they're doing it is not the same as way as, like, say, BlackBerry, where they're going to run an emulation of of Android and you'll just be able to hook up to the store. So they're going to actually, in Windows Phone only, they're going to have an Android subsystem. So and they, they wouldn't elaborate on what that is, but 
Android apps should be able to be moved over to the Windows Store. And to make it clear, I guess, it's not going to be, you'll be able to add the Amazon App Store to your Windows phone. That's not how it's going to work. The, the developer still needs to initiate this. So they're going to bring their code over as it is. It'll run on the phone. They'll be able to tweak it a bit, hopefully, to you know support live tiles and that kind of thing. Um, Microsoft is going to add their own APIs for a lot of the Google services. Something about Android that maybe not everybody knows is that there's Android open source project, and then there's Google services on top of that. And a lot of apps now target the Google services because the Android open source ones have stopped being updated, though. Uh, they're going to su supplant that with their Bing services. And then obviously the controls will be the Windows Phone controls for the keyboard and that kind of stuff. Uh, they showed a demo of that. It seemed to be okay. It wasn't that uh, great of a demo. The app was kind of having some problems. So I think they still have some work to do there. But And then the biggest, biggest announcement, probably of the entire keynote, was that they're going to support Objective-C in Visual Studio. And Objective-C, for those that don't know, is the language that everybody writes for iOS app. And this isn't going to be emulation either. It's actually going to compile Objective-C into native code. So that's a big change from, like, especially the BlackBerry model of running a virtual machine and having your app there. Once again, the dev needs to initiate this. They need to bring their code over. We'll have to wait and see if they get any traction on this. But it seemed like their goal was to be to knock down as many barriers as they could in order to get more app support, and especially the tablet apps. I did discuss some of the Objective-C stuff with them after in a meeting, and it sounds fairly impressive what they're trying to do. It seems fairly straightforward for the dev. They'll be able to bring over, if they have a, an iPhone app and an iOS tablet app, which are separate apps right now in the store, they'll be able to bring both over, make it a single universal app, and if it's on a phone, it'll automatically use the, the one from the phone. If it's a tablet, you can just use the tablet app. So it should be fairly straightforward to port your code over to Windows. So does that mean that we can get an Objective-C app on Windows 10 PC? It does mean that. It means exactly that. So that's kind of their whole strategy. Knock down the barriers, bring the apps. That's what they need. So these will then be universal apps. They'll run on PC. They'll run on tablet. They'll run on phone, and in theory, they'll run on Xbox, although we haven't seen any Xbox yet. That's one of their other platforms that they're going to target with these Windows Universal apps. The interesting thing here is going to be how quick Windows 10 adoption occurs. I mean, they're already trying to accelerate it by making it a free update to people who own Windows 7 and Windows 8. But if you end up getting a large Windows 10 user base, Every reasonable iOS developer is going to say, hey, port, copy, paste, edit, slightly, done. I mean, that's the goal, right? That's the goal. That's big news. Yeah, it was it was very, very impressive. And they, they have a target that they said during the keynote that they want to have Windows 10 on a billion devices, one billion devices in the next two to three years. So it sounds like a big ask. It's It's not as big of an ask as you might think it is, but... I, I think they'll be able to do it. Once they get that kind of traction, then it's going to be difficult for a, for a dev. And this is the problem right now, is that why support a platform with 3% of the market share, which is Windows Phone? So you can devolve your resource to iOS and Android, where there's a lot more people. So, But if there's a platform that supports a billion devices, it's going to be hard to say no to that. And I mean, that's that's the goal, though. They, they, they've shown the tools 
they still need to get those devices and then they will get more support in theory. But it's all theory. I mean, it could still, you look at Snapchat, that guy is not going to ever port his code over. I mean, they're still not going to have all the apps. They won't necessarily get them first. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out over the next while. They also gave a HoloLens demo. You actually got to try the device. Yeah, so they did. They brought a few hundred HoloLenses to build. Yeah, it was a few hundred. Yeah, it was quite a few. It was still very secretive. Uh, I had to lock my my phone and my laptop in a locker before they'd allow me to see it, um, which was kind of crazy, but because there was really not that much to see. So, but it was pre-production hardware. It was almost final. It was actually apparently the January device, which I didn't get to see. It was, you know, tethered and it would run off another computer and all that stuff. But this is just a single device, untethered. You put it on, it doesn't weigh very much, and it projects augmented reality into your into your field of view. So the demos that they showed, especially during the keynote, were very impressive. But what this is going to be able to do, fortunately, my experience and the experience of others was that the hardware is kind of limited right now. The field of view is incredibly small. So it kind of ruined the immersion that you get. So I know, Ian, you also did the Oculus Rift demo and, and, and those other VR ones. So it isn't VR. It's not VR at all. It's not virtual reality. You're not put in another world. It's things that you need to interact with put into your world. The one thing it did do really well was the sense of the room. It used Kinect sensors, so Kinect was kind of a failure on Xbox. But the technology lives on, luckily, in the HoloLens. So it can scan the room. It can tell where people are. It can tell where objects are. It can tell that this table is this high. And you can set this virtual device on top of the table, and it'll sit there. It won't go through the table. But you could put it under the table, too. And it can. it was very impressive the way that that worked. So... And the audio was very good. It maybe wasn't as good as the Oculus Rift audio, but it was it was pretty good. The thing for HoloLens for me, the um, the way I see it being promoted is you no longer need a TV. It just projects on a wall in your house and it detects where the wall is. Yeah, and like during the demo, they actually had a video playing, and he just said video follow. I believe that was a command, and the video unhooked from the wall and followed him down the hallway course during the keynote that looked fantastic but if you were actually wearing the hololens you wouldn't be able to see any of it because the field of view was so small so hopefully they'll sort that out but when you look through it's not vr you can see through they're not completely opaque devices like you can't project something on a wall and it looks like it's really there it's you can still see through it so it's not it's not perfect but the i think there's a lot of applications for it i did the uh the trimble demo where they uh, Trimble's an architecture company, so uh, you were able to like design a building and change the wall heights, change the texture on the wall, change the color, and they showed it in. Well, that first thing that they said, they had a demo there of a of a model that this is how it, traditionally a building is made is is they make a three D model, and the model that they had brought wasn't very big. It was probably as big as a large kitchen table. And it was twelve thousand dollars, and it took months to make it. And it's and of course that's coming down with three D printing too. But you know, with Hololens, you can just put a building in the middle of this, and instantly change. Oh, I want the walls this high. Oh, I like the color here. So, and then of course you can bring it with you 
to where this building's going to be, and you can see how it looks in the actual environment. So that's one, obviously, that's, I think, pretty strong, and they're already working with this company to use this. So it seems like they have their sights on specific applications. This isn't going to be something that everybody has in their house. Although, I mean, maybe someday if the price comes down, but of course they didn't announce pricing, but I'm sure it won't be cheap. You said it was tethered, much like the um, the virtual reality headsets we've tested so far. Well, no, it's it... untethered. It's actually this Un- just a device on your head. There's no markers on the wall. With the VR, there was markers on the wall, so it would know where you were in the room. It doesn't have any of that. It's just a completely standalone device. No external battery or anything. No, the battery is integrated into the headband, so I'm sure it doesn't get 10 hours of battery life. But yeah, no, it's completely untethered. There's there's no external device needed. It's yeah, it's unlike VR in that sense because VR needs like a big computer to hook it to in order to do all the graphics. But this is completely self-contained. You got no information on the hardware inside, though. Ah, uh, <laughs> they're very cagey on the hardware. I've I've heard rumors that it's Cherry Trail powered, but. I mean, it would make sense, I guess, but uh, they've also got their own uh, holographic projection unit or something that they've called it. So, um, And they've bought some other companies in the past that they're probably using their technology in there. But but yeah, no, there was no... Uh, they they wouldn't really let you look at the, at the device very much. And even though it was near final, it certainly isn't final hardware. They were very delicate with it. You had to get assistance to put it on and off. They wouldn't let you just take it on and off because you might break it. So uh, it's still a demo, but uh, it's definitely getting closer. Hopefully they can get to work on their uh, field of view, and that might be a hardware restriction too. If you take Google Glass, now that's not really augmented reality. That's just you know, a personal assistant on your face. They use their own um, FPGA or something similar. So I'm wondering if Microsoft are doing something like that rather than, say, using Cherry Trail. Obviously, we don't know, but... Is, is that not a possibility? Uh, I think for the holographic projection unit, it would be something custom, some custom silicon. But I think for the actual CPU part, there'd be very little reason to do that when, when you know, companies like Intel and ARM have already got all that IP done. So it wouldn't make a lot of sense to design your own CPU for this. But for the, uh, for the custom parts, I'm sure that there's something in there that's... Uh, it'd be interesting to see what they are using, I guess, when it when it finally launches, and we can take a look at it. I'm just wondering, you know, how much parallel processing, how much custom algorithm goes in? Yeah, it, I mean, it needs to be a lot because, boy, it would really, it really knew what was going on in the room. It was very impressive, and I mean, the Kinect does that too on Xbox One, but Xbox has quite a big processor compared to something that would sit on your head, uh, and it gets a lot hotter. So uh, impressive, yeah, I want to know what's in it, but they would not say anything, and the demos were very much not about what's the hardware. High-level demo, I love those. Yeah, they had had two demos, and I did the hour-long one, which was very high-level, and then they did another one that was on coding and how to bring your apps in, because it is running Windows 10. Apparently, it's fairly straightforward to bring your apps into the HoloLens if you do want to do something in augmented reality, but I mean, your app needs to be something that would work for that. But although, you know, they showed video and, and like you said, you could use it as a giant TV. Although if a TV got too big, you wouldn't be able to see it all because the field of view is so small. I'll stop talking about that. Did they give a percentage of how far they are long for a consumer device or any particular release date or? 
it's going to release sometime after Windows 10, so I guess we'll just have to wait. It'll probably be this fall, but it doesn't seem like it's you know five years out like VR was originally. Oculus Rift just got a tentative release date of Q1 2016. So um, HTC Vive, they said they wanted it out by the end of the year. I've not heard much updates on that. So I know. I, yeah, I, know. I mean, I'm really curious to see how uh, how they price those and and like. I think you said uh, originally at CES, like they really need some AAA content for these. So yeah, we, we need to know more. Well, it's as I say, augmented reality is a different beast. They they might find more applications for Hololens in professional markets and enterprise markets. Yeah, I first. think it's going to be big and proje- uh, professional. On the keynote, I guess another demo was they showed a doctor who was able to teach you know how the heart works to his students through HoloLens, and rather than having to cut up cadavers. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of education for it. I, I think Oculus Rift or another VR would also be great in education. The one thing that the that the doctor said, and I'm, I mean, he was in the keynote, so it's all scripted, but, you know, he said that uh, the thing that he liked about HoloLens is that because it's augmented, he can still have a connection with his students. So if you were all in VR you wouldn't see each other at all because you'd be on in your own little world on each one. So I think there is a lot of professional stuff for this. I think it's, if the hardware is what it needs to be in it, I don't think it was yet, but uh, I think it's going to be a pretty popular item. In VR, you can get rid of the unsightly wrinkles or belly fat that you might have, that I might have, that somebody might have. (laughs) I would be able to have hair again. That would be so great. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but no feet <laughs> wait wait no wait no, no hairy feet or no feet full stop oh i just remember it's yes i was you, you were always like oh i don't have any feet so oh yeah the the, the quintessential issue with the uh, first person shooters you look down and you wonder if you have feet yeah and of course you don't so i'm sure they'll bring them but <laughs> what else happened at build <laughs> lots of things <laughs> what happened. else happened at build okay well Let's move on to a few more Windows 10 things, I guess. Uh, this wasn't really brought up too much, a little bit at Build uh, at the, in the keynote, but uh, there's a new technology that Microsoft is bringing called Windows Hello, and it's going to be tied with something called Microsoft Passport, which is a, a rename because they, of course, used to have Passport. that used to be your Microsoft account back in the day. So Windows Hello is uh, a way to sign into your computer using biometrics. We've had biometrics. I mean, iPhone has biometrics. Windows PCs have had fingerprint readers for years and years. So Windows Hello ties that all together into one service, and you'll be able to use, um, it was actually the Intel RealSense 3D cameras to log in, so it'll be able to recognize that it's you, it knows it's a person, scans your retina and all that stuff. So that's going to come, but I thought the more interesting part, although signing into your computer is nice, but the Microsoft Passport part was more interesting to me because it's going to use PKI, public key infrastructure, to get rid of passwords. Passwords on the internet are a huge problem. Some people argued with that in the comments of my uh, passport article or post that I did, but you just see the huge dumps of databases of passwords uh, that have happened over the last few years. There's you know tens of millions of passwords out there, and cracking passwords is getting easier. So by using public key infrastructure, uh, you'll have a private key, and the website will just have a public key for you. So you can sign something, send it there, you'll be able to authenticate it. But if your public key is ever compromised, it's nothing. 
So the only thing it can do is read the things your private key sends. So I think that's a pretty cool technology. And once you're signed in with Windows Hello, it should automatically, the websites will be able to use this to automatically log you in. I think it's going to be a pretty important technology going forward. Didn't really get a lot of attention at Build, but as somebody who hates passwords as much as I do, I think it's a great thing. And I use a password manager and all that, but they're still just painful. So Hang on, hang on, hang on. You're the person who has a 63-digit Wi-Fi password, if I'm not That's mistaken. correct. I do have that kind of a Wi-Fi key, So, um, but I don't like that I need it. If it, was, uh, if it was PKI, it would be a lot better. But but you've broken routers who advertise 63-key passwords, but don't Well, it's not that they route, uh, advertise it, but that is the spec, is that WPA2 can support 63-character keys. And not all routers can do that, and not all... Wi-Fi cards trying to connect to routers can do that either, so which is always disappointing because it is part of the spec, and you think they would just test at the end, but they don't. So my password is not sixty-three characters. It should. Do you want to just give it out here over the podcast? Maybe you can. <laughs> oh sure. Uh, okay, so what else happened to build it? There was a on Thursday after the keynote, uh, we got to go off to the Microsoft Loft in uh, San Francisco, which used to be the Xbox Loft. And there was a bunch of Microsoft people there, Joe Belfiore and others, Gabe All, which is the head of the Windows Insider program. And then they had a bunch of demos of their new technology and stuff. And we were able to, you know, ask questions, ask quite a few questions about hardware. They had some of their first party hardware there, Surface, Surface Pro, uh, Xbox, that kind of stuff. So I got to do some game streaming on the Xbox, which was fantastic. Uh, it had like zero lag, although it was over Ethernet. But uh, I could really see a lot of uh, good uses for that. Your Xbox is a good, you know, maybe maybe not the best gaming console ever made, but uh, we'll just leave that part alone. But it's a, it's a lot stronger GPU than your typical laptop or tablet, especially now, uh, you know, something with a 4.5-watt CPU and a, you know, passive tablet. It can't really run, you know, AAA games. So the game streaming was excellent. You just plug a controller in. Just a question on the streaming. Did um, did they mention whether it was gigabit Ethernet or 100 megabit per second? I'm sure it was on gigabit, but it does work over Wi-Fi, wireless N, so uh, I, I asked them that specifically. I was, I, I'm, I'm just thinking because a lot of people who invest in the console market who maybe not have the full gaming PC at home, they also might not have an up-to-date router they may be using the one that their service provider gives them. And I know my one is absolute rubbish and has 100 megabit per second Ethernet ports. I mean, obviously, Wi-Fi is the solution there. But I didn't ask specifically about 100 megabit, but if it works on wireless N, it's going to work on 100 megabit because you have uh, much yeah, better game throughput. So wireless N, I mean, it's it peaks at, you know, what is it, 480, but it never gets there. I mean... Best case yeah. scenario, it seems to be about 150 with, you know, worth latencies and all that. So it should be fine on 100 megabit. So if not, string a new cable. <laughs> Hook it straight to your laptop. Still on Xbox, I guess. One thing that Gabe all mentioned was that they're, they're not going to devote any more resources to Media Center for Windows 10, which is a little surprising. They, they For 8.1 and 8.0, they brought the Media Center from 7 over as a separate application, and you'd have to pay for it. I kind of had a feeling maybe they'll just bring that into Windows 10, but it sounds like well, Gabe all announced that they're not going to have it now at all. So Media Center is officially dead, unfortunately, and I used it for a decade. So nobody mourns it more than me. 
it was a great piece of technology, but just not enough people used it, and it was too complicated. I'm confused here. So what what now becomes the default media player in Windows? They have their Windows 8 apps. So Windows, uh, I think they're going to rename it to just video. Is it Xbox video right now? I think it might be. But so you have video, you have your uh, Xbox music app, plays your music. Media Center was really... Well, the one thing that Gabe said is that people just use it now to watch DVDs because it has the codecs for DVDs, which aren't free, which is why you had to pay for it. So they are going to have a solution for DVDs. I mean, there's tons of DVD software out there that people can purchase too, so that's not going to be anything spectacular. But the one thing in Media Center was the ability to watch and record live TV. And that's part of that is already on the Xbox now. You can actually watch TV through it. They've added a, a TV tuner support for, but it's over-the-air TVs right now. So, And then in the UK, they have a DVB, is it DVB-S that you use there? I can't remember. DVB-2? I can't yeah, so they have a tuner there anyway for the UK. So you can just plug that in and get digital cable that way. So apparently they're going to add uh, the ability to use it as a DVR-2 coming up later this year. So I'm not sure how they're going to do that with the Xbox One, but um, it's going to be the media hub for the living room, at least Microsoft's goal for it. And I think that makes a lot more sense. Media Center, as much as I loved Media Center, I couldn't really recommend it to people. It was too complex. You know, there was always quirks with it. And this way, it's just, you know, just a typical set-top box, but it does, it'll do more now. So I think that's the way to go for consumer. You've got to make it easy. Quick poll here of interest. What media play do you use on your PC? Boy, I don't really watch a lot of media on my PC, but I just use the the built-in video app. It's the oh, one that okay. I use. I mostly use it just for our benchmarks, for our battery life testing. But uh, yeah, if I need to watch a movie, that's what I do it on. Because I just generally stream over Netflix or something. I use VLC, which I know a lot of people don't like, but I use that streaming from my NAS. So ultimately, loss of media sense doesn't affect me that much. But I can see my father who records, say, videos of when he's playing at a, at a gig, when he's with his band, and then he comes home and he wants to watch it. Normally, it would just start up in Media Center. So he's going he's gonna to find that initially confusing to begin with, I think. Uh, and it's actually surprising that it starts in a Media Center because that was always the problem, is that nobody really used Media Center. And those who did seemed to launch it accidentally and then close it right away. So... <laughs> <laughs> they actually showed some uh, data that a few years ago where most of the people that launched Media Center just closed it within 15 seconds. So it wasn't being used as much as it needed to, and it apparently is quite a resource-intensive project to keep running. So uh, as much as I love Media Center, I can see why it's going away. And There's been a lot of push lately, especially to cut the cord in that, so but that's not really anything we need to worry about. So I guess we'll move on. The other thing that uh, Joe Belfiore mentioned at this breakout session was the launch schedule for Windows 10, and he wouldn't give dates. There was a rumor because uh, AMD's CEO mentioned that uh, it was going to roll out in July. So he, he actually he didn't say it by name that it was that, but he said other companies have said when we're going to launch it, and they haven't set a launch date yet is what he said. So, But it will be in the summer. Their summer timeline is still a go. However, with Windows 10, we're going to be on everything from PCs to phones to Xbox even and HoloLens that uh, it's not going to all be on the on day one. So it'll be a staggered rollout. The phone will come later. 
I'm sure HoloLens will be after that because it's not quite as as important to their strategy. Uh, and Xbox at some point will be updated. It'll be PC first. That's a majority of their use case. That's the people they really need to get upgraded. They don't want to have Windows 7 as another XP where they just have this huge user base sitting on an old version of the operating system. They want to get everybody on the on the new one. They can leverage the store and all that other great stuff. So They're saying summer which is July, August, September. I'm thinking yeah. what industry events are in those months. Right bang in the middle of that, you've got Intel Developers Forum, IDF yeah. San Francisco. IDF. When is that? Do you remember? Um, I believe it's August 15th. Okay. Um, so that's slap bang in the middle. You've got PAX Prime, I think, is at the end of August. Then you've got things like Gamescom and IFA in September. Um, Actually, games, Gamescom might be a bit earlier than that. but It seemed like the feeling was going to be that it'll be either late July or early August for the launch. So, And I guess the one more thing I'll say about the launch is that they've really stripped a lot of the parts out of Windows 10, and it's going to be a launch, and it'll, they'll call it RTM, and everybody will you know shake their hands, and it's launched. But you know a lot of the apps will be able to be... Even the start menu now is something that they can update through the store. So... Even though it's going to be launched, there's going to be constant updates. So, And there's going to be big updates coming. Not everything that they've announced will be in the initial build of Windows 10, like such like the extensions for, for Edge won't be there when it first launches. And they're going to have the ability to put Win32, which is the old desktop apps, into the store, but that won't be there on day one. So even though it's going to launch in the summer, it won't all be there, but it's going to start in the summer. And that that was build. <laughs> it was, that was build. A couple of days of, of of busyness there, yes, for sure. Two days, three days. Yeah, it was three days. So uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So lots of sessions, lots of things to learn. Uh, it was it was pretty interesting. It was my first build conference, so it was pretty fun. Yeah, we need to get you out to more of them. We got some good content that week. <laughs> out yeah, on, there was some website. great stuff. Uh, if only they could announce big bombshells like iOS, you know, code being able to be run on Windows every week. That would be pretty great. We'd have an easy job. They also gave you um, a parting present, didn't they? Oh yeah. So the the uh, everybody at Build got an HP Spectre laptop, which is the the new uh, laptop from HP that's all aluminum and it's got the the yoga style. I call it yoga style because Lenovo kind of started the whole you know, flip the screen around hinge. So you can flip the screen around, use it as a laptop or a tablet or something in between. So yeah, they gave all those out. So now we can finally review one because we hadn't been able to get one yet. So uh, it's on the list, I guess. I know you've just talked for ages about build, but I also want to get your thoughts on um, the Surface 3 because you um, you recently posted your review, um, Surface 3 being the essentially budget version of the Surface Pro 3, but running Intel's new Atom architecture. Yeah, interesting. As well. Yeah, so the X7, I guess, is the, this model, the X7-Z8, I say, I say Z, not Z, Z8700, which is the top-of-the-line Atom for now. Uh, Cherry Trail, like you said uh, earlier. Yeah, it's actually the launch vehicle for Cherry Trail officially because this is the first device with cherry trails so pretty sure this will be a moment in history when microsoft is launching something with the newest silicon from anything so even though it's adam yeah so we just posted our review 
overall quite like the device. If you want to use it as a tablet, it's much better as a tablet than the old Surface RT, Surface 2. So it's running on Atom. I'll let you talk about this a little bit, but the, uh, the Airmont cores. Yeah, Cherry Trail uses 14 nanometer upgrades from Silvermont. So in Intel's TikTok strategy, um, we get an architecture update followed by a node change followed by an architecture update. This is more specifically a node change. So I'm going from 22 nanometer Silvermont Bay Trail to 14 nanometer Airmont and Cherry Trail. Officially, nothing much changes with the silicon, though in reality, chances are it's optimized for the new node which means you know stuff gets moved around slightly on the die to improve both efficiency and power consumption and everything else that's what normally happens with a die shrink that's why we also see small ipc increases usually plus obviously moving to a smaller node means a big benefit in power or potentially more cores in in um, the same die area the next architecture upgrade will be with the next Atom. And now that Intel has moved from a five-year cadence on Atom to a regular cadence following the core series, we should see the next big architecture, hopefully sometime next year. Though that being said, Cherry Trail still needs to pick up speed with this being the first device. Yeah, and they clearly had a slow rollout with 14 nanometers. So it be interesting to see if that holds up the next architecture or not. Uh, I don't know if it will on either, but we shall see. So Surface 3... Quad core uh, Airmont cores. So this is Cherry Trail, uh, 10.8 inch, uh, three to two display, which is uh, 1920 by 1280. Um, and this is probably the biggest change that I found was that it's a much square display than the than it's the same ratio as the Surface Pro 3, and the old versions were 16 by nine, which I always found was too wide for a tablet. So if you held it in portrait, it was too tall and skinny. If you held it in landscape, it was too long and it would be quite heavy because it would be overbalanced if you're holding it in one hand. So uh, it's a lot more balanced as a tablet. The display itself is probably the most accurate display that we've ever tested, which is quite a step up from the Surface Pro 3, which was only, it was, it was okay. It wasn't great. 2.4 gigahertz turbo, 1.6 base. Um, I haven't had a chance to run our uh, the same test we did on Core M on this yet, but it's on my list of things to do. I want to see how it performs over sustained workloads. Gen 8 graphics, I think you brought that up earlier. Uh, they've moved up to 16 execution units, though, from from four on Bay Trail. So that's a you know fourfold increase. That's pretty significant, but they've kept the power the same or actually even lowered it a bit over, over Bay Trail. It's interesting with 16 execution units because it puts it, the basic Broadwell core processors, their low end has 12 execution units at a slightly higher frequency, whereas Atom X7 has more units at a lower frequency. And Surface 3 means that you have more parallelizable units at a slower frequency, which um, will help certain workloads. Sorry, that's just an interesting aside. But. <laughs> It is. I mean, it's a big change over their previous graphics. So uh, I think it's it's fairly interesting to see the generational jump there from Gen 7 to right to Gen 8. So Because Baytrail did not have the Gen 7.5 that Haswell yeah. had. So uh, anyway, moving on, I guess it's 499 for the base unit, which is 2 gigs of RAM and 64 gigs of storage. So been some people complaining about the price. I think the price with those specs is pretty good. I mean, the build quality is as good as any other tablet out there. The screen is fantastic. And 64 gigs of storage is 
probably the place where you'd want to start with Windows. Uh, there's always a recovery partition and other stuff that takes up space. So some of that's taken up. I had 37 gigs free when I first started it up. But uh, when you only have 32 gigs of space, like something like the HP stream, even with Wimboot and all that, it doesn't take very long before you're having to manage that space. And managing the space on Windows isn't as easy as it is on, say, Windows Phone or other mobile OSs yet. But for $100 more, you can get 128 gigs of storage and 4 gigs of memory, which I think for $100 is a reasonable upgrade. I mean, I don't know. What do you think but, on that? Is it too much money or is it is it okay? My point of contention would be the um, Asus UX305, which we mentioned up in the core end piece, because that starts at 700 Yeah, 699 is their official MSRP on that. For a 128 gig... Plus uh, drive. Plus no, it's four. actually two fifty six. Actually, SSD plus eight gigs of RAM and Core so, M. So, yeah, the Asus is incredibly well priced. So, I guess that's not really a fair comparison, is it? Well, yeah, it's so the contention should be your your base Surface Three is five hundred bucks. You get double space and double storage and double RAM for another hundred, or for another hundred, you get a fully blown core laptop. Yes, but it's a laptop, it, so. If you're not, if you're looking for a laptop and you need to put something in your lap, uh, and I said this in my review, just buy a laptop. The beauty of Surface, I think, is that it can be a tablet or a laptop at any time, but it's not a great laptop in your lap. It's a great laptop on a table, and for people who need to use it on the go in their lap, they're going to be much happier with a real laptop, like the Asus. I think that Asus is uh, is a great price, and it's probably the one I would recommend to most people because. It's a great price. It's fanless. It, they didn't skimp on any of the specs except for the wireless. Anyway, it was a big update from Surface 2 to the Surface 3 because they've dumped ARM now. They had a brief stint with ARM there. It didn't really pan out for them. I think they came in with ARM at exactly the wrong time. They chose the Tegra 3 for their Surface RT launch vehicle, and it was underpowered for what they needed it to do. So if they would have waited a bit longer, there would have been you know, Snapdragon 800 and all that coming out later. And then, of course, Intel came out with Baytrail, and instantly it didn't make any sense to run ARM anymore on Windows because Intel's parts were fairly power competitive and performance competitive, plus they had backwards compatibility. So, so anyway, using the Surface 3 is... Uh, is really good. It it didn't ever feel slow unless I was doing something fairly intensive. So, uh, and a lot of that was the storage was quite slow on it. Um, it is encrypted storage, so I mean that's going to cause you some overhead, but it shouldn't be too bad. But yeah, as a tablet, it, the performance was as good as as almost any. So, for the market, I think it's it's a decent price. Adding the pen, I thought, was something that was excellent and. The Surface Pro line has always had a pen. I think it was just last week there that they announced, yeah, it was, that they that they acquired the Entrig uh, pen technology. So I'm not sure what Entrig is going to do anymore. They didn't say they bought the company. They just bought the technology. So apparently that will that company will continue on doing something. But they bought the ten, uh, pen technology, and pen is going to get more integrated into Windows 10 as well. So I think that's a great idea for them to showcase the technology in their own product. Um, the pen, the pen's an extra fifty bucks, right? Yeah, everything is the the accessories is what really kills Surface Three. the The keyboard is one hundred and thirty dollars, and the pen is fifty dollars. So, if you're going to use it as just a tablet, you can get by without the keyboard. I think the keyboard's a great accessory. 
I think it's overpriced, but uh, there's already been some retailers that are bundling. Uh, I believe Costco had a bundle where it was $5.99 for the base model that came with the keyboard and the pen. So that's a little bit easier to swallow when it's both devices. Yeah, that's an $80 saving. Yeah, and uh, don't quote me on that. I believe that's what their bundle was. But And that'll I think that'll be the, the key is if they want people to buy these accessories, I... I did tell them last week, and I mean, now everybody tells them that they're too much money, but uh, $130 for a keyboard is pretty crazy when you can buy almost an entire laptop for that nowadays. It's 130 plus tax. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and in Canada, it's even worse. So, But your review of the Service 3 is online, and anybody you know, interested in the form factor, the, the Intel Atom performance, or even just to look at how good that display is. I mean, I saw... I, saw the display numbers and I thought, wow, that's that. they've actually done a configured display on that. Highly yeah, recommend it was impressive. Check out the website to, uh, to read the review. You were writing it during build, weren't you? I was. I brought it with me and I was writing it while anytime I had downtime, I was trying to get some of that done because uh, it, was, it was a lot to talk about on that device. And I think it's, I think it, we'll see the Surface Pro 3 has resonated with people, and especially a build. I saw them everywhere, but that's a bit biased of a crowd. But you at least hear of it, you see that people know about it, and now they finally got one that starts $300 less. And it's actually the performance isn't that much worse than the i3 version of the Surface Pro 3, which starts at $799. So $300 less, Atom versus Core i3. And i3 is really handicapped because it doesn't have any turbo. So that really hurts it on performance. So it's, you know... They're saying it's about 70% of the performance. So, And I, I would probably agree with that. On the GPU, maybe not quite so much, but on CPU workloads, it was about 70%. Microsoft's played around with the Surface line now that they're on the third iteration. It's, um, I mean, Microsoft, historically, software company venturing into hardware. It still feels a little strange, personally, that, you know, you can buy a, you know, a Microsoft manufactured device rather than people, you know, you say, oh, my PCs are Microsoft or whatever. Yeah, um, exactly. When you've got strong incumbents like, you know, all, all, all the OEMs plus Intel with its Ultrabook strategy and you, you know, you've got people like Lenovo and Asus and everybody else who have been at this thing for years and years and years. And the whole point is they don't design the operating system, so they focus solely on the hardware and the design and building it down to a price. I think if Microsoft wants to be serious, I mean, I've probably seen about two surfaces outside of the tech industry events, which is appalling, and I live in London. So if, if they want to have a bigger presence, personally, I think they need to um, diversify the product range, perhaps a little bit more, perhaps offer more variety, and one of the things that's going to help them do that is if they can bulk manufacture to bring price down. Does that sound like something that Microsoft should be doing for you, is from your perspective? Uh, from my perspective, I would love that. However, it seems like they don't want to do that because they're afraid of stepping on the OEM's toes. They want to keep the surfaces the premium device that it, that it is. That way, you know, Dell and HP can still offer devices like for a little bit less money and get some sales. Uh, a Surface laptop, I think, would be fantastic. Seems like they don't want to do that because they don't want to... They've, they already annoy their OEMs enough when they launch Surface because now they're directly competing with them. And 
they've made some concessions, especially on the Windows pricing, that hopefully that's not going to be a problem. But I, I don't. I would love to see them diversify their line. Right now, I don't think it's in the near term future. That's a shame. But yeah, yeah, you are right. There it are kind of is. Yeah, there. political. I think it's political. <laughs> any any company that has a big OEM reseller or at least has to pass off their products to somebody else before it gets into the hand of the end user. They have those issues always in the back of their mind. And Microsoft was so successful selling through OEMs for so long that, you know, I think they're a little bit leery about just dumping all that and trying to be the next Apple and selling their own hardware. Plus, uh, I guess one of the things I build was that they really we're trying to de-emphasize the device, although devices are important. Obviously, we all love our devices, especially in Ontic. Um, it's more about the experience in the app. The experience should follow you to whatever device you're on, and that was something that they were trying to push. So we'll see. I mean, we'll see how that works out for them. But uh, anyway, I guess we should move on to other laptops. <laughs> well, it's just briefly, I've got a stack of laptops here, and yes, I'm trying to get through them for everybody. One of the interesting ones that just launched, uh, we did see at CES, was the Lenovo LaVie, which uh, is the ultralight laptop with core i-series, so i7. It was the magnesium-lithium-ion chassis in it, so but it's 15-watt CPUs. It's got a 1440p display with i7 and a 256-gig SSD. It's not inexpensive. It starts at 1500 US in it, and the convertible one goes up to 1700 but uh, I, I'm excited to see that. There's been a big push for lighter weight machines, uh, you know, like the MacBook and the Asus UX305 are both, you know, quite light. But this is even lighter, and yet it packs Core i inside of it instead. So I'm excited to see that one. But it's it's 13 inch device, and I remember when we sat in Lenovo's meeting room at CES, and Ryan's face when he machine. Well, it is etched on my memory permanently. It just, really just, was. Just he picked it up and his mouth was open in shock and awe. And I must admit, I, I was really surprised. Though that being said, I have read online that apparently the device is slightly heavier than what we yes. The specs on the site show 1.87 pounds for the, for the light ones. So. Uh, I think we were qu- quoted more like 1.7-ish. I believe that's what we were told originally was 1.7 and 2, but the, the convertible one is still just 2. When you get the, the V in hand, uh, I'm speaking to them about whether they're going to be at Computex this year because I'll be at Computex in the beginning of June. And that's about the same t- you know, release time that they said it should be on shelves and it's available on the website. But I really want to go back and see it again and see whether that weight difference... I don't know, there's, there's something about that initial shock and awe. And you're never going to get that back because now you're, you've already seen it. But it sure makes other laptops feel heavy. Absolutely. I mean, the HP Spectre that I got at Build is like 3.2 or 3.5 pounds or something. And it, I mean, it feels like a brick now. I mean, I'm so used to, you know, the Asus is like 2.4 pounds and the XPS 13 is 2.6 pounds. So it's funny how these little bits of weight sure make a device feel a lot heavier. So What's that in normal metric? Oh. About, about a kilo. 2.2 pounds is a kilo. 2.2 pounds is a kilo, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, 1.2, 1.3 pounds are kilos, sorry. We're always given well, the specs in, in uh, Imperial for some reason, even though I, I use metric on my day-to-day life. It's North American press releases, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, thanks, Brett, for taking us through Build and Surface 3. It's, um, 
and all the work you did on Core M. I mean, I, I only wrote a little bit. Big thanks for you for doing that. And a big thanks for coming on to do another podcast. It's about 90 odd minutes of uh, fun, fun, fun. And uh, we're definitely going to have to get you back on again after you take through some uh, more devices. Yeah, I think this is really uh, a great year for, for laptops, especially. It's just been so many devices I've seen that are great. And I can't wait to bring more of them to the, to the website. Uh, we got a lot lined up. Its build was very fun. I, I think there's a lot in store this year. Windows 10 is going to be obviously a big deal. So thanks for uh, thanks for having me on, Ian, and thanks for helping me out with the Core M article as well. I, I did do a lot of the testing, but you helped out too. Thanks. We'll get more of those sorts of articles on, on the website for our readers. Well, again, thanks, Brett, for coming on the podcast, and thanks to everybody for listening in. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night.